This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, multiple miscarriages or stillbirths may also increase your risk of stroke. An update to last week's conversation about shingles vaccines. And speaking of vaccines, some remarkable findings in babies with the BCG vaccine, the one they use for TB. And last month, a new option for cervical cancer screening was introduced that some experts believe is a game changer for many women. You can now do it for yourself. No doctor, no speculum, no indignity. Professor Deborah Bateson specialises in women's reproductive health and chairs the Implementation Committee for Self-Collection. Welcome back to The Health Report, Deborah. Thank you, Norman. A pleasure to be here. Let's just go first. Cervical cancer. This is the neck of the womb and it's a nasty cancer if you get it. It's a nasty cancer. It's a it's a horrible death, and we know here it's the 14th most common cancer in, in women, and in our neighbouring Pacific countries globally, it's the fourth. So you know we and we've we've got the tools and te- technology now to prevent it. Is it still a problem even with HPV vaccination? Yeah, so it is still. So still, the latest data shows that around about 900 or so women are diagnosed with it each year and around about 200, well, 233 deaths predicted in 2020. So it's still an issue. And we know that around three quarters of those who, who develop this invasive cancer in Australia are under or never screened. So that's still a barrier. And the HPV vaccine is fantastic, of course, but that's going to take a bit of time to catch up. So the oldest women in our 40s who've been vaccinated. You, in a recent article, you said you're on track to be. We are on track to be the first country in the world to eliminate it. On what basis do you say that? It sounds like we're still getting a lot of cases. Yes, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? We've still got. I mean, it is on the basis of our, our vaccine program. We're vaccinating boys as well as girls, but also our screening program. But there are still gaps, so we've got to fill these gaps, and we've got to bring in people who are underscreened. But we are on track to eliminate. Uh, so that's it's four. It's less than four per hundred thousand uh, cases in a year. So it's not eradication. Uh, so we've still got ongoing work to do. But we really need to bring in these people who aren't being screened and are underscreened. So they the ones who develop the cancers. So we've still got hard work to do, but now we've got this game-changing potential, as you mentioned, with self-collection to overcome some of those barriers. So what is this self-collection? Because it's based on the fact that we now know that human papillomavirus causes cervical cancer, so you're not getting the pap smear anymore. That's right. So we changed in 2017 from the pap smear every two years, looking at cell changes, and now we're testing for that HPV infection. So we're looking for cancer-causing types, the oncogenic types of HPV. Uh, oncogenic meaning cancer-causing. And the basis yes. of this is that if you haven't gotten, if you haven't been infected with HPV, you're not like you're not likely to develop cancer. So it's a threshold test. If That's you like. right. That's right. So we're, we're detecting what we call the high-risk types. That's types 16 and 18. And then there's another 14 types which are intermediate risk. They're less likely to cause cancer. And we're detecting that HPV infection. And if we're detecting that, then we're either sending people off to have a close look at the cervix with the colposcopy for the high-risk cases, or we're, we're surveilling them. So at the moment, if you've got it well in this new program, you know, it's got a very excellent negative predictive value. If you have a negative HPV test, it's safe to say, look, come back in another five years. Uh, but what we're wanting to do is, is pick up those cases where, of course, where there is that HPV test. So how does this self-testing work? Well, so what it is, is that it basically it's, it's women have the option. So people have the option. So instead of a speculum exam and taking the sample from the cervix, uh, it, 
people can, women can, are given a swab and it's a dry flock swab. We're all familiar with those now. It's inserted into the vagina, just a few centimetres and rotated around to, to collect the cells from the vagina and pop back in the in the tube. And women can do this, you know, behind the curtain or in the, in the bathroom at the clinic. They don't have to be observed doing that. And actually, potentially, this also opens up the possibility of, of you know, even having tests at home as well. Uh, so when we know it's as accurate as clinician collected. So it's... Oh, it's so that was my next question. It's a PCR test, isn't it? It's a PCR test. Yes, it's a PCR test. And we're familiar that, with that, of course. So, uh, And very accurate. It's as accurate as a clinician-collected test. Now, do all path labs deal with this at the moment? I don't so that's a, that's a good question. So until the change, so the change came on the 1st of J- July of this year, there were only three big labs around the country that were doing this, uh, offering this um, analysis for these self-collected samples. Now Because it's a different analysis things. from the standard piece, it the is. standard test that the GP might do. It is. They need the correct platform to do that analysis. So as a GP, you need to know whether your local lab is offering the, offering the analysis. Uh, but what happens now is if they're not, they need to, they do then send it on to a lab that is. So, you know, we, we know that that's a barrier that's disappeared and more and more labs are actually taking up this, you know, they want to be able to provide this, this analysis themselves, of course. So it's done uh, so, in the GP surgery or can you do it at home? Yes, look, it's it's preferable in the GP surgery. I know that if I give someone a swab, they go to the bathroom, I'm going to get it back. We know that if there's other steps added in, then there is a chance that, you know, it's not going to come back. But it does open up the possibility of telehealth. We're all used to that now. You could, you know, have that discussion, organise the pathology request form, uh, and then the person could go to their local lab to collect the test. But one thing is we know that you have to have a local arrangement in place. Not all the collection, collection centres will have that, those policies or those rights swabs. And what about, need what about right swabs. rural and regional Aboriginal communities? Yes, look, it's, it's got great promise. So it's, it's available everywhere. I mean, anyone now is eligible who's eligible for screening between 25 and 74, including pregnancy, uh, regardless of your background, anyone with a cervix um, can, should be offered you know, either that choice of self or condition collected. And there's lots of excellent research going on in, with Aboriginal communities, co-designed research, uh, co-designed. There's a lot of excellent resources on, this, on the um, Department of Health website. And it can overcome those barriers of you know, stigma and shame and people who've had previous sexual trauma, for instance, for whom a speculum is just, you know, a barrier too far. Now, I understand there isn't going to be a Medicare item number for this till November. No, that's not quite right. So there, there's Medicare item numbers now. There's just a very small uh, group of people where it's not not available to November, and they're not screening. That's for people who want to self to choose or who choose self collection if they've had an intermediate risk result. They're being followed up, and they can only so get that, that, that's my so. next question. Is one is follow up. So this is a you're tr- you're trying to find the hard to screen group, people who don't come yes. forward necessarily for screening for all sorts of reasons, yeah. often disadvantaged. What are yeah. you going to do? They, they, first of all, if it's negative, they've got to be tested every five years. How are you going to recall yeah. them and know that? And secondly, if there is an abnormality or there is HPV, they've got to come back for colposcopy. Aren't you compounding the problem with self-testing? So what we they're really good questions. So we've got an excellent register uh, in Australia. So we've got which sends out invitations and recalls, and, and people consent to be in, on that register, and it's going to go digital fairly soon as well, which is great because at the moment it's based on letters. Now you're absolutely right. So negative, yep, five years. 
if it's a 1618, that's the most cancer-causing HPV types, then we do refer people straight away to um, colposcopy. So, and we do need to make sure that we've got, it's written in the guidelines, we need to make sure we've got that continuity of sensitive care. Because you're absolutely right, people who've opted for a self-collection, you know, they need to understand, uh, need to have, have fully informed consent about what's going on. Because if they have a not 1618 result, then they do need to come back to the GP for the cytology test. We can't click, we can't um, test for cell, cell changes on that self-collection so form. So some people may choose to have a clinician collect so it's where not, we can test. So it's yeah. not test and forget for either the GP or the woman? It's not test and forget. And a, and a lot does need to go into that informed, you know, supporting that informed decision. It's not just a matter of saying, oh, look, you know, you can have this with this speculum over here or here's just a self-collected swab. There is really important information to support self-collection. And there are some great resources, actually, on the National Cervical Screening Programme uh, website and in, in different languages. Yeah, And we'll have a link to those on the Health Reports website. Deb, thanks for joining us. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. Deb Bateson is Professor of Practice at the Daffodil Centre at the University of Sydney. A miscarriage or stillbirth can be a devastating event. To experience these multiple times, heartbreaking. But there may be another hidden sting in the tail for women who experience recurrent pregnancy loss and increased risk of stroke later in life. And while it sounds like adding insult to injury, maybe identifying this risk gives us an opportunity to intervene. That's according to researcher Gita Mishra, who joins us now. Welcome, Gita. Thank you. Thanks, dear. So, so with this research, how did you refine recurrent when you were talking about miscarriage or stillbirth? Okay, so for stillbirth, it is uh, two or more. Uh, and in the population, in our data, about um, 1% of women had two or more um, stillbirths. And if you think about miscarriage, actually, because it's reasonably common, uh, recurrent is defined as having three or more miscarriages. And around 2% of women in our study had three or more miscarriages. So you're looking at a really big data set here. I think mm -hmm. the data came from about 600,000 women across seven different countries. You're following up for more than a decade. Can yes. we talk about, I mean, one or 2% of that is still a large enough number to sort of get some predictive value. So what was the risk of stroke in the normal group of women? And then how much of a difference did it make if you had recurrent miscarriage or stillbirth? Okay. So with the with our study, as you're saying, we followed the women up and was on average for more than 11 years. So during the follow-up time in that population of 600,000 women, about 2.8% of them had non-fatal stroke and 0.7% had fatal stroke, right? So this is in the group we were following. Now, if you were to look at women who've had a stillbirth, so recurrent stillbirth, that is two or more, then... 5.1% of them had non-fatal stroke. Remember, we're comparing it with the 2.8% in the population. And 3.6% had fatal stroke. And remember, this is comparing 0.7% in the population. If you were to look at miscarriage, though, it, the figures is almost double. So 4.1% and 1.2% with fatal stroke. So it's a doubling of the risk, but still among 100 women, we're looking at four of them. So mm -hmm. what sorts of stroke are we talking about here? Because your stroke could either be caused by a, a clot or it could be caused by a bleed. Uh, did it sort of tend in one way or the other? 
Yeah, so this is really interesting. So for women who've had stillbirths, what we found is that if they had a non-fatal stroke, it was more likely to be ischemic, that is uh, a blocked um, blood vessel. But if they had fatal stroke, it's more likely to be hemorrhagic, that is um, burst. So it's not like it's it's causing clots and then that's what's going to be causing it. It could be going in either direction. So, I mean, what on earth could be happening in a body? Is it maybe the miscarriage or stillbirth causing these things or is it maybe something that's just systemic in a woman's body? Absolutely, Tegan. I don't think our data can um, say about causality. We cannot say that, you know, having experiencing pregnancy loss is uh, associated with uh, stroke. But what we can say is that there is an association. It could be genetics that's affecting both pregnancy loss and risk of stroke later in life. It could be a, a third factor that we're not aware of, you know. So there, there could be other reasons and it's definitely an active area for research. When I first read this paper, I thought, gosh, what a kick in the pants. Like you've already lived through this this awful time and then you're sort of being told that you have an increased risk of something awful happening later in life, but you actually see this link as an opportunity. I do because I think what women can take away from it is that miscarriage and stillbirth they are signals of our health in later life. So you can see that they signal that a woman is at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, this uh, risk of stroke, for instance, occurred many years uh, before the woman develops other risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, and cholesterol. So there are time, you know, about 10, 15 years in between experiencing pregnancy loss and getting the disease, that women can really do something about it and try and change or mitigate her risk. And I, uh, one of the things that we have been saying is, you know, to live a healthy lifestyle because we know that that is associated with reduction in risk of cardiovascular disease. So by that, stop smoking, eat a healthy diet, you know, have a moderate alcohol intake, do exercise regularly and uh, maintain a healthy body weight. So so these are all things that we should all be doing anyway. But what you're saying is the importance of really being on top of every other risk factor is heightened when you know that you have this independent risk factor at play. Absolutely. And definitely talk to your GP because we're saying that GP needs to know about the women's reproductive history and also be aware of the risk that recurrent miscarriage and stillbirth can bring. Is there any way that the relationship could work in the other direction where if you were avoiding the risk factors that we know exist for stroke, whether that might reduce your risk of pregnancy loss? That's... That is, uh, I mean, okay, so yes, I would say so. For for instance, if you think about some of the risk factors for uh, pregnancy loss, could be still um, obesity. So, you know, and we know that obesity is also associated with risk of stroke or cardiovascular disease in later life. So it could go both ways. And I think what's going to be important for us now uh, working on is really to map up the trajectories of the women. We want to know once she's had miscarriage or stillbirth, you know, what happens? What is her lifestyle factors like? What are the things that are happening in her life that is putting her at an increased risk of stroke later in life? So these are areas that we will be looking closely into in the future. Yeah, one to watch very closely. Gita, thanks Mm -hmm. so much for joining us. Thank you, Tegan.
Bye. Gita Mishra is Professor of Life Course Epidemiology at the University of Queensland. If you need support for pregnancy loss, you can call SANS on 1300 308 307. The BCG vaccine has long been a mystery. BCG stands for Bacillus calmet Guerin, after the French scientists who wanted to develop a vaccine against TB. And just over 100 years ago, they gave the first doses of a highly weakened form of animal TB, which they hoped would provide resistance against human tuberculosis. The trouble is that the BCG is not always good at providing TB protection. In fact, it may work in an entirely different way from normal vaccines. It seems to bolster the immune system's first line of defence and has been shown, for example, to have some effect when injected into bladder cancers. A large international trial is underway out of Melbourne to see if BCG immunisation provides broad protection against COVID-19 in healthcare workers. And it's also been tried in infants with some pretty amazing results. Associate Professor Boris Novakovic of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute was one of the senior researchers involved. Welcome to The Health Report. Um, hello, thanks for having me. So this was in a study to see if BCG prevented allergy and infection in these babies. Uh, yes, so this is actually a uh, Melbourne study uh, called Miss Bear uh, that's run out of the Royal Children's Hospital by Professor Nigel Curtis. Uh, and the primary aim of this study was to see whether uh, the BCG could protect against uh, allergy and eczema. Uh, and the reason that this is the focus in Melbourne, uh, as opposed to looking at its uh, sort of uh, off-target effects, uh, these beneficial unexpected positive side effects for infection, uh, because in Melbourne, uh, children are very unlikely to get these very serious infections. So rather, it's thought to be uh, protective against allergy. So th this was given within 10 days of birth. Before we get on to the, what you call the off-target effects, uh, do, we yeah. know, do we know yet whether these babies uh, do have a reduced incidence of allergy and eczema? So that was interesting, yes. So there was a paper uh, from this group last year, uh, and that was the first preliminary finding. Uh, it's that uh, children that were at high risk of uh, developing eczema were the ones that were being protected. So that's, that's quite interesting. That was unexpected. So in general, a child that gets the BCG vaccine had no sort of obvious effect for allergy. Uh, but if the uh, child's parents had eczema or had other sort of high-risk uh, uh, symptoms, the child was protected, yes. Now, you use the word, the phrase off-target effects. What else yes. did you find? And this is where the surprise came. Uh, yes. So, well, this actually um, came from a study about 10 years ago um, in Africa. And what they found there was that babies, especially small babies um, at birth that received the BCG vaccine, uh, were less likely to die, for example, from sepsis or viral infections. So something completely unrelated to uh, tuberculosis. So what this means is that the BCG vaccine uh, acts in a completely different way. And it has these beneficial effects that were completely unexpected. Uh, and this sort of has nothing to do uh, with the way we usually think of vaccines. We usually think of antibodies and the adaptive immune system, etc. Uh, and like you said, this is completely uh, based on the first line of defense. So it's this uh, innate immune cells, which are basically large uh, white blood cells that eat microorganisms. And we previously, you know, for hundreds of years, we thought, you know, uh, these cells can't remember. And they just sort of, they respond and they die. Uh, but what we found here is that they actually um, uh, have this capacity for memory. It's non-specific and it's broad, 
uh, but they can remember these things. Yeah. So what you found was that these monocytes, these white blood cells, 14 yeah. months after the babies had had their immunization, still had the ability to rear up and protect the baby in theory against infection. And it was actually, it changed the genes. There was called an epigenetic response. In other words, there was a physical change in the monocytes. Yes, so that, that, yeah, that's the interesting part, yes. So these monocytes actually had this epigenetic change, uh, which regulates uh, how uh, genes can be expressed uh, up to 14 months after the vaccination. Um, so these cells, they're re released into the bloodstream, they last for about a week and then they die. So this is really important. The fact that we saw it up to two years after the vaccination means that they're parent cells in the bone marrow. They keep producing these monocytes that have a specific set of genes that are on high alert in a way. So they've been trained and the genes that we found to be trained are those that respond to viral infections, which actually works um, matches really nicely with the clinical trials that are coming out uh, for the BCG vaccine. So, in other words, there may be a good side to this, yet to be proven that this protects the babies maybe against respiratory infections or something else in a very broad brush, maybe even COVID-19, because so it's the yeah. initial barrage of the immune system that's non-specific that says, oh, something is attacking us, we're just going to throw up everything we've got before the targeted cells can get here. Um, so that, that, that's a potential good thing, but it's not, necess not necessarily all good. I mean, for example, if you go later in life, this innate immunity is thought to be behind aging. Uh, yes, so that's a really interesting... Um, so could you be uh, speeding aging in these babies is my question. Uh, right. So, well, we don't have evidence for that exactly. Um, the term, another term that's used for that, I guess, is inflammaging, sort of inflammation with aging. Uh, there is uh, a growing body of literature that suggests that this trained immunity, this sort of hyper-responsiveness of the innate immune cells occurs when you eat a high-fat diet uh, in response to cholesterol, for example. Uh, and it's also seen in these cells from people that have uh, uh, obesity or atherosclerosis. So it is exactly what you're saying is that in Africa, of course, you can see how this could be a great thing to boost your immune system. Uh, but in places like Australia, it could actually be contributing um, to these sort of morbidities that we associate with sort of a higher inflammation. So there's a safety. So the question is, you've got to sort out safety, haven't you? Uh, well, the, the BCG vaccine is extremely safe to receive. Uh, uh, no, no, I understand that, but the long-term effects. Yeah. Uh, the long-term effects of this in the Western, uh, yes, that, that's a good point. That's something that we would have to sort of see what role it plays um, uh, in, in aging, yes. Um, well, look, thank you. We'll, we'll watch that, uh, that, that closely. So it may be a double-edged sword and there may be something to it because it's still a mystery how this BCG works. Boris, thanks for joining oh, us. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much. Associate Professor Boris Novakovic of the Murder of Children's Research Institute. So, Norman, one of the topics we covered last week was shingles. And speaking of vaccines, uh, we spoke to Professor Tony Cunningham on the different types of vaccines that are available for shingles, and it's generated a lot of feedback. So maybe we could recap on that a little bit, because one of the topics we discussed was the fact that there's more than one shingles vaccine, and they differ in how effective they are, but the one that's subsidised in Australia and made free to people over the age of 70 is the less effective one. Yeah, so the, the, the one that's there free at the moment is uh, about 40% effective and wears off 
whereas the one that's uh, not approved according to clinical trials, and you can go back and listen to Tony Cunningham's interview last week, um, is uh, about 90% effective and lasts quite a long time. Well, we got, an, we got a couple of emails, but one of them I'll read to you from a listener who said um, that she wanted to add her story about shingles and the vaccine that she was offered. They were vaccinated at 70, uh, but, she, but four years later this January, she came down with shingles. It took a really long time for her to recover. It was on her face. She couldn't read or concentrate or walk. Disorientated, dizzy, perpetual headaches. And as an academic, she had to give up teaching. And um, she says, it's disconcerting that the only vaccine we were offered was inferior they didn't know that at the time, of course, and um, and it's really sort of speaking to some of the reaction that we did get about uh, the coverage. And uh, another another um, uh, listener wrote in because I said it was about one hundred and fifty dollars a dose. And I think I probably got that wrong based on what my local pharmacy told me. I think I was getting a discount and I didn't realise it. It's, <laughs> it's about two or $300 per dose. And we actually just, you know, just before we came to air, we got a, I think it was a, a tweet. A tweet? A tweet. A tweet which said uh, they were being charged over uh, $1,000 uh, for the two doses, which sounds amazing. And there maybe is a shortage at the moment. So anyway, we went to um, the Commonwealth, to Barnum Age Care, find out what was going on and also the uh, company that manufactures at GSK. So what the Commonwealth says is that in November 2014, the, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, that's the committee that assesses drugs for subsidy, assessed the shingles vaccine Zostavax, that's the one that's free, and recommended it be available for aged people, for people aged 70 up to 79, not beyond that because it's less effective for people aged 80 and over. Um, and at the time, Shingrix wasn't available on the market. They also say in 2018, the PBAC considered but did not recommend uh, the listing of Shingrix for, for the National Immunisation Programme because they couldn't be certain about the cost-benefit uh, cost structure and uh, said that uh, it was really up to the company to put in the data. The company says... Um, to date, GSK has been unsuccessful in securing access for Shingrix because our current health system, they say, undervalues prevention. Hmm. They claim in 2018 to have put forward a robust evidence-based submission that would represent a value for money investment in the health system, but, the system, but it was rejected. But they also say that they are continuing to engage with the federal government for a way forward for Shingrix funding in Australia. So it is expensive, more expensive than I thought, and uh, there's, there are ongoing issues. Now, I think it's important to say that um, we didn't run this to say you shouldn't have the current vaccine, if, especially if you can't afford the one that's not free, that's on private script. Um, it's just to be aware of this um, in, and why wouldn't we have this on the free list? I mean, cost is a huge issue, as you know, in um, Oh, especially for older people. And it has been really interesting having this conversation with the backdrop of COVID because we're so much more aware, I think, of different vaccine technologies than we were two years ago. We, we've sort of been talking about the, the pros and cons of different vaccine platforms. How do they differ in terms of not just effectiveness, but also what we know about safety? Um, well, the Zostavax, which is the one that's on the list at the moment, is a, what's called live attenuated. So it's the whole whole virus um, it's living, but it's not supposed to replicate. There is a theoretical risk if you are immunocompromised, and it's not recommended that you get it if you're immunocompromised because it could actually, um, you, you could actually get a, a zoster infection. 
the um, uh, the Shingrix vaccine has the same adjuvant. In other words, this is a recombinant one. It's genetically engineered. It needs an adjuvant to get the, the immune effect. The adjuvant is quite similar, interestingly, to the Novavax vaccine's adjuvant. There is evidence that if you've got an autoimmune disease, you get a flare-up. There is some debate about whether you can develop an autoimmune disease with it, but that seems to be more of a flare-up. Um, and there's a growing body of evidence in terms of its safety. But it seems to be reasonably safe, um, but it's certainly not a trivial question to ask. So there you are, and you'll find out more on... Um, uh, and you can always email us at healthreport.abc.net.au. Yeah, let's keep the conversation going all week. But for now, that is us done for the week on The Health Report. We'll catch you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.